0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Laura DeVoulis, who is the Acquisitions Editor for History and Current Affairs at the Johns Hopkins University Press. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks, Christina. I am so glad you're here uh, and that we get to talk about your work and all the things you wish we knew. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. So I'm an acquisitions editor at uh, Johns Hopkins.
0: I work here with um, a handful of other editors or four or five of us. Um, we each acquire in a uh, you know sort of bounded uh, discipline. So the disciplines that I acquire in are... American history and current affairs. Um, current affairs is not, it's a bookstore category. It's not a academic discipline, obviously. So those scholars who are publishing and what we understand as current affairs come from a variety of disciplines. Um, but for the most part, I work with historians. That's probably 90 to 95% of my books um, are American history. Um, I've been here for about five years. Um, I've worked at a couple of other publishers previously, so I've been in publishing uh, almost two decades now.
1: And what drew you into this field? How did you hear that you could have this job and and what made you um, what made you choose this career path?
0: Yeah, I, interestingly enough, um, as a student, when I was an undergraduate, I was uh, I attended Hopkins and I actually was an intern at the press. Um, And I found uh, the work, I found it very satisfying. Um, I found it uh, very uh, fulfilling. Um, I thought it was interesting. I met interesting people doing it. Um, And uh, when I graduated, I sort of said, let's try and keep doing this and see what happens, uh, which is a very common way for people to get into publishing. Uh, It's very common for people to get into publishing as a sort of... uh, Maybe less intentional than some other career paths, um, and I've I've always enjoyed it. I've enjoyed um, learning new things. I learn a lot not only from the books that I work on, but also from my colleagues who work on different kinds of books. Um, you know, I've learned a lot about dinosaurs and public health and um, you know higher ed finance and other things that I otherwise just wouldn't know that much about. So it's it's been a really rewarding career path in that way.
1: Internships can be so important. Did you feel that your undergraduate major prepared you for this? Did you have a mentor to help you along the way as well? Um, I didn't
0: really. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in international studies. Um, and it is, you know, at times it has been sort of academically relevant to the work I do to a greater or lesser degree. Um, my first position in publishing, I worked uh, as the assistant for a science editor, um, which was, you know, just sort of a whole new uh, intellectual world. Um, and so you know, publishing is a funny career in that you you know, you do see people who sort of stay in one discipline, both in their academic life and then in their professional life. Um, and you see people who sort of move around uh, you know, and are sort of made do sort of more humanities stuff and more social sciences stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny in that way. Um, some of the skills are subject-based and some of them are, I guess you would say skills-based, right? Publishing skills.
1: It's fascinating when I ask people that question episode after episode, a lot of people have a path to where they are now that they didn't either, they didn't expect Mm -hmm. or that one wouldn't guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very common. I mean, you
0: see a lot of people in, in particularly in academic publishing who, um, either, you know, got their PhD and then, uh, left academia or had to leave. Right. Um, For reasons outside their control um you see people who you know sort of got halfway through the phd and decided i actually don't want to do this which is fair um you know you see people like me who came in sort of as an undergraduate um you know and 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 i think all of those perspectives are valuable um and you know it, it we really do, uh, you know. We have an, a weekly editorial meeting at which sort of everyone is invited to talk, and, and having all of those perspectives at the table, I think, is really, really valuable.
1: Does the internship that you had does it still exist?
0: Um, it it does. It was not at that time. It was not a it was not a formal internship program in that way. Um, we do now at the press have a formal, a much more formal internship program. Um, I was essentially a student employee. We do still uh, hire student employees in my department and in other departments here at the press. Um, and I would say, you know, particularly if you're an undergraduate student or even a graduate student who's thinking about publishing as a career path, you know, it, it is um, a good a good first step is to if your university has a university press to to reach out to someone there and say, like, hey, do you guys hire student workers, you know, would you hire me? <laughs> so.
1: And to do it for twenty years, you must love it. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, again, it's 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 very intellectually stimulating in a way that um, is I think tough to find actually in a in a in a professional career. Um, you know, certainly, I do my fair share of paperwork, I do my fair share of sort of mundane, uh, things with spreadsheets, right? But, uh, you know, it, it is like, fundamentally, my job is I'm talking to people about ideas, right? And, you know, that's a really rare and precious thing to be able to get paid to do. So
1: do you have a big book collection? I'm imagining that a editor with 20 years of experience just has books and books and books.
0: Do I have a I'm sorry, could you repeat that?
1: Do you have a, a substantial book collection?
0: Oh yes, um, I do. I, you know, I, I it's, um, it's kind of becoming a problem actually. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I there are several little free libraries in my neighborhood that receive very generous donations at uh, regular intervals. Um, but no, I do like to sort of hold on to books that I published, and I, you know, like to go back and look at them, and I. Yeah, I feel affection for them, and and it's nice to have them. And it's nice to be able to, uh, like hold in your hand the thing that you're you made professionally. Um, you know, there is still a an appeal to that. Um, and I think that is that is also getting kind of more rare. So,
1: I'm imagining that you have almost a personal timeline or autobiography, you know, as you hold different books, you can remember where you were in your life or key things that were happening to you that are tied to the timeline when you were working on that particular book with the author.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's often like, oh, I remember this book because we had some crazy unique problem, (laughs) you know, in the production or in the, you know, some some wacky thing happened. Um, That's very common. Uh, You know, so books are um, every book is, it's sort of a cliche to say every book is unique, but in fact, you know, every book is, um, maybe you could say an artisan production, right? Like every book needs something slightly different from all the other books on the shelf. Um, and, you know, authors are not sort of interchangeable, right? They're human beings. They need different things. Um, they want different things. Uh, not all authors want the same thing. Um, not all authors have the same goals when they are being published. And you know, one of the things I often tell people um, in, in situations like this when I'm when I'm talking to graduate students, when I'm talking to postdocs is, you know, if there is one thing that is like super important to you in the publishing process, what your goal is, whether it's I need to have this book out by a certain time, or, you know, I really need it to be priced affordably for this reason, or I really, you know, my my most important concern is that, you know, it be distributed to a certain available for sale in a certain territory or country. Um, you should be up front with your editor about that, because I can guess at what is most important to people, but I don't know. Right. Um, and it, it does vary so widely. And sometimes sometimes I'm very surprised at, at what people put a lot of weight on, not, not because it's an unreasonable thing to put weight on, but because it, it just was not obvious to me, right?
1: So it sounds like you're encouraging um, authors to be very open with their editor about things that we probably have been told we should not say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my preference is pretty much always for people to tell me what's going on if they expect me to act on it in some way. (laughs) Um, You know, I I think, you know, we, right, like, we're we're putting out a lot of books, right? So I probably have at this point, across sort of all of my... um, books that are in various stages, right? So everything from like, I've talked to this person about a contract to this book comes out next week, you know, I'm probably working with 150 or 200 authors, right? I cannot make assumptions about (laughs) what it is you want. Um, You know, so I think um, it is always fine, particularly for first time authors, it's always sort of fine to ask questions about the process. Um, the process is not immediately clear to everyone. And I understand that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that is quite frankly, uh, like boring for you, <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of stuff that I do that that's sort of internal. Um, I'm, I'm happy to explain it when authors ask about it, but I, I never sort of assume that they want to hear it because it, it's like, it's a lot of writing of memos and stuff like that. Um, you know, I I would encourage authors to, um, particularly first time authors. If you are on a a deadline on a clock, you're you're racing against a tenure clock. Um, I generally encourage authors to submit to more than one publisher, um, and but you do need to be upfront with publishers that you're doing that. It is it is okay to to do that unless the publisher has a specific. Um, you know, sort of rule against it, it's perfectly fine to do that. What is not fine is to conceal that, that you have done that. Um, it is fine to ask your editor or your prospective editor how they work, right? Um, you know, what kind of uh, feedback they give, what how intense that feedback is. Um, it's fine to ask what their sort of standard... Um, timeline is, I will say that timelines in the early stages, the early stages of peer review, particularly are very variable. Um, and I, you know, anyone who tells you differently is either, uh, doing this job very differently or is the luckiest person on earth. (laughs) Um, and it's getting very fast peer reviewers. Um, But I think all of those things, you know, I would encourage authors to ask about it. Um, You know, this is, this is ultimately, this is a partnership. Um, You know, you are not necessarily the junior partner in the partnership. Do you know what I mean? You are are your partner who is different, doing different work. Um, The publisher does one kind of work and the author does one kind, another kind of work. And you are an expert in the thing that you are writing about, and we are the experts in publishing books, and that's that's the partnership.
1: So, you spoke about timeline and um, when people are needing to get something published quickly, or they need to be able to predict. When the book will come out because they are writing a grant proposal or they're going up for tenure or they're applying for a new job and they want to honestly convey this information. On the other side of it are people who will either have a change in their timeline or who are worried about being able to keep up with what they assume should be the timeline. So they're promising they can do things more quickly than they can because they're, for example, pregnant. But they don't want to say that because often in academia, that can open some other perceived problems and real problems that they don't want to get into. Uh, And then there can also be caregiving duties that can slow things down or um, life events. Um, And my sense from talking to people is that they're nervous to tell their editor about this because it will make them seem Less committed to the project, and so then they're trying to do everything as on the previously agreed on timeline or on the timeline they think the editor expects from them. How do you work with your editor to honestly convey that you may need a slower timeline or your original? Um, chomping at the bit timeline that you actually brought to your editor, you know, you can't sustain?
0: Yeah, so I would I would say um, the first thing to know is in the nearly 20 years that I have been doing this, I can count the number of books that came in on time on one hand and with fingers left over. Um, so uh, turning a book in late, being, whether it's, you know, hey, I'm going to be a month later. Hey, I'm going to be five years late is normal and expected. Um, we, you know, so when we are talking to an author and we get to the point of offering a contract, that contract has a due date and, you know, that is our date that we sort of plan by, right? So we say, if we get the manuscript on this date, we think we're going to publish whatever it is in this season, right? Um... Our expectation is that particularly for first time authors who tend to underestimate how much time they need to finish a book is that those books will move, Um, by which I mean, move, move a season or move in time. Um, I often tell my authors again, because I I work mostly with historians, um, all of this stuff already happened, right? It's all in the past. And the fact of the matter is, if the book comes out in March, which is our spring season, or if the book comes out in September, that does not change the fact that all of this stuff already happened. It is fine. <laughs> um, you know, academic books, in particular monographs, books that are for specialists, they don't tend to have a lot of seasonality to them. There is not necessarily a better time to publish them um, from our perspective, sort of financially. Um in terms of publicity, that is not necessarily the case for what we call trade books, which are books that are aimed at the quote unquote general reader, right? So people who are not specialists, Um, for those books, often there is a better time to publish them. Um, And uh, for course books, so books that we think are going to be adopted into a course for which the primary uh, market is students, um, there is a better time to publish those books, um, but that is, in most cases, that's, um, there is a better month to publish those books. It's not necessarily, we need to publish those books right now. It's, um, Hey, li- Hey, listen, if you can't get this, this manuscript to us by X date, we're going to push it by a year. Right. Um, so I would say, I, I know this is like, uh, people, authors have huge amounts of anxiety about this and, um, my counterpart at another publisher compared this to like going to the doctor, like your doctor has seen this before, like whatever it is, however weird you think it is, your doctor has seen it before, right? <laughs> so, you know, don't be shy. Um, the earlier that we know that you are moving, you know, that you are needing to move your, your submission date, um, the better sort of advice we can give you. Um, now the fact of the matter is if you have a hard deadline where you need to have a finished book in hand by this date, or you don't, you can't go up for tenure, then that deadline to turn in your manuscript is a firm one, right? Um, you know, our production process does take a certain amount of time. We can compress it somewhat. We cannot compress it infinitely. If you do not have that kind of hard deadline, then you should not lose sleep over this. Like this is not, I cannot stress enough how normal it is for books to come in late, for manuscripts to come in late. We love it when they come in on time, or more or less on time. But it is completely normal for them to come in late.
1: I think a lot of people just let out a big exhale. They've been holding their breath for so long. <laughs> Um, and it's wonderful to hear you say that, because uh, people like me who do developmental editing, we say, talk to your editor. Mm-hmm. They, I'm sure they've heard of this before. And the author always has a sense of letting someone down or that it will affect their reputation. What will, what will it mean for future books if I promise to do this by X date and it's, it's not going to happen?
0: Yeah, I mean, it means again, it means that you're normal, right? And and so if I've worked with someone on a couple of books and and I get the sense that hey, this is someone who always needs more time than they than they think they need, you know, when I'm talking to that person about a due date, I may nudge them towards a later date, right? Say so like, hey, why don't you give yourself a couple extra months on this, right? Um, but you know, I, I again, there are certain kinds of books that are time critical, Um, you know, certainly current events books, the the sort of smaller part of my program, those are often books that we are trying to get out as soon as possible. Right. And those are books for which I will sort of really try to hold an author to a deadline Um, because the nature of current affairs is that they keep happening. And so, you know, you're trying to sort of time that book to when the thing is still happening. Right. Um, but again, for, for monographs, largely they take as long as they take. Right. Um, and, and that's that. And I, 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 I really cannot say enough how, how normal it is for us to, Uh, sit down at a meeting that we have every six months or something like that. Um, And we have a whole list of books that are on sort of the next season that we're dealing with. So a year to a year and a half in advance. And we may sit down at that meeting with 200 books on that, that list and we may move half of them. Right. That and, and a month later we may move another 25. Right, that it is, it is totally normal for us to do that.
1: Listening to this, it, it provides help for scholars who do need to create a new book project. And they're trying to figure out what project to embark on now based on a lot of variables in their life. And it sounds like for people who need a slower timeline, there are certain subject areas to write in that that will be a good natural fit for the publishing world. And there are other subject areas to write in. If you have domestic life support or you have academic life support or you have a graduate assistant assigned to you, if you have things that will make a deadline possible, you can take a deadline-driven writing project and, and put that right now at the forefront of what you're working on. If you need a slower path to publication because of what's going on in your real world because you're a human being, there are other subjects to write in that will work well and you, you won't feel like you're annoying your editor.
0: I mean, I think a lot of this is driven by, you know, what your sort of home discipline is, right? So in, in history, right, historians by and large are not writing what we call current affairs books, again, because the, the two concepts are sort of fundamentally opposed, right? The, the, the history, which is the past and the current affairs, which is the present slash the future. Um, there are some, you know, certainly there are historians who are writing about, um, the, uh, you know, sort of persistence of the past into our present moment in various ways. And that those are, those are essentially current affairs books. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is knowing sort of like what, to the extent that you can, right? You know, knowing what your life looks like, you know, your whole life, not just your your academic life, and how much time you can devote to a project. And also, like, do you actually want to write this book, right? So, you know, things like course coursebooks, um, textbooks, uh, and just as a, a point of reference, the the sort of distinction that I make is a course book is something that you would use you would assign for a week or two in a course, whereas a textbook is sort of a full semester book. You start at the beginning and you end at the end. Um, but they are similar kinds of books in terms of a writing project. You know, those are very market-driven, right? That's that's you know, we send those out to um, potential adopters, people who teach in that area, who could potentially adopt the book, and and we say, hey, you know, can you take a look at this? Um, what's good about it? What's bad about it? You know, what does it need? Um, do you use a textbook now that's similar? What's wrong with that book, or what's right with that book? What does it have that? Is essential. What does it have that you don't use? You know, and then we sort of take all of this feedback to the author. You know, and this becomes a project of um, meeting the market where it is. Um, And the fact of the matter is, some people do not want to take on that kind of project, and that is fine, right? Um, It is not the same kind of um, intellectual creativity of as sustaining a book length argument. Over the course of a monograph, um, and that is the way that some people would rather write, and that's fine. Um, so I, th- I think you you have to be honest with yourself about what you want to do, what your your sort of overall career goals are, um, how much time you can devote to it, and you know what you're hoping to sort of be able to hold in your hand in you know five years, ten years, whatever it is. Um, Now, with that being said, I will say most authors underestimate how much time any project is going to take. And it may be that most people just underestimate how much time any project is going to take. I'm sure I also uh, fall victim to this, but um, it is, I I would say, as a default, you should assume that your first... Um, estimate of how long something is going to take, particularly if it is a new kind of project for you, add some time onto that.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Authors have a lot of misconceptions, a number of which you've cleared up for us, so thank you. You recently took to social media to address a misconception about the term advanced contract, what it is, how serious it is, whether or not it's a legal document. What inspired you to take to social media and explain advanced contracts?
0: Yeah, so I get this question a lot, um, and or I get um, not necessarily a question, but a sort of like, uh, we'll get to a certain point in the process and someone will be like, Hey, are you going to send me the real contract now? And I have to be like, you signed this a year ago. Do you need me to send you another copy? Right. So, um, there is a, there is a perception, um, among some folks, I don't know, maybe it's an urban legend, a sort of folk tale, um, a folk understanding that what we call an advanced contract is a contract that is an advance of another contract, right? So that, um, and the the popular understanding is that if you send me a proposal and a sample chapter and I do the whole peer review and editorial board and our whole sort of administrative process, and I offer you an advanced contract based on that, that that contract is sort of like not serious and, um, that it's not serious until, you know, you send in the full manuscript, at which point I offer you a different contract. And um, I have heard this from scholars that I've been working with. Um, and I've, I, I hear it sometimes from uh, people who say, you know, my tenure committee doesn't believe that this is real. So I will tell you two things. The first is I am not excited to do any more paperwork than I have to do in this job, right? So, um, and it takes actually quite a lot of paperwork to generate a, a legal document. Um, so uh, I'm just not interested in offering one contract and then offering another contract that has largely the same language. Um, but the other thing to know is, you know, we consider that that contract is a legal document, you sign it, our director here signs it. Um, it, it obligates both of us to do certain things. It obligates the author to do certain things. It obligates the press to do certain things. Um, and it, it is, you know, that is the point at which we have decided, yes, we want to invest in this person and their work. It is a, it is a serious commitment for us. Um, I have never in my career worked anywhere where that was not the case. Um, and so I think, uh, and I've talked to to other editors um, at other publishers, and we're all sort of pu- puzzled at at how this became an understanding among certain parts of the academy, because none of us offer these sort of non serious advance contracts. Um, but I'm also aware that, like, you know, uh, there are people who are wondering about this and are not going to ask me outright. Um, and so my hope is, you know, when I just sort of tweet things like that in between, you know, pictures of my cat or whatever, that, that people will see that and go, oh, okay. Um, and I also sort of hope that, that, uh, you know, people who are sitting on tenure committees will see it, right. Um, because, you know, it's important for them to understand, um, the level of commitment that the publisher is indicating with that document, right? So I think it's reasonable for a tenure and promotion committee to, to sort of say, hey, listen, you know, this person has not yet produced a manuscript and that affects our our deliberations in the following way. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's their business. That is their, their process. Um, what is not correct is for the person sitting in that chair to say, you know the press is not the publisher is not invested in this project and this they you know this is a sort of throwaway document it is not it is it is a serious this book is in our database we have assigned it a season we are waiting for that manuscript to come in we want to publish this book right our our inclination is to publish we are publishers so we want to publish it
1: I think when you said you're not interested in extra paperwork, you uh, had the tenure committee's attention. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone who does any um, academic job, any um, job that uh, interacts with formal academia, such as museum work and archival work, my work, we have so much paperwork mm-hmm. that you, you had us, you spoke our language. <laughs> it's, it, it is, I mean, it is a real,
0: you know, um, it's a real, uh, elemental understanding, let's say. <laughs> so.
1: And the, the term advance just literally means invan- in advance, in advance, you gave them the contract in advance of being given a complete manuscript. That's correct. So it's, it's a, a, a contract in advance of a,
0: Complete and final manuscript. Um, So you know, typically a so typically a publishing contract. If you offer that contract on the basis of a proposal and a sample chapter, will have language that indicates you know you have to submit a full manuscript. That manuscript has to be peer reviewed. um, At a university press, the faculty board will have to weigh in as well. Um, And that that language is pretty standard. It you know it varies from publisher to publisher, but a clause that sort of indicates that will will pretty much always be in your contract. Um, and so that's the, that's the thing that the contract is in advance of. Um, very rarely, you know, the timing works out that someone will send me a, a manuscript and we'll go through the whole process and sort of like, by the time we get to the point of signing the contract, I already have that in hand and it has already, you know, gone through the whole thing right all the approvals and all this and we have all the art and we have all the permissions we have all the manuscript files everybody's feeling very happy about this um and in that case we would modify that contract language to say like you know the author and the publisher agree that this manuscript has been delivered and this that, the other thing um,
1: but that's in that's the very trade, rare in the trade world they call that spec you you you'll get the contract after you've worked with the editor and delivered the entire manuscript mm-hmm. for them, at least a complete full draft. Um, sometimes a, a very advanced draft, there's only gonna be some copy editing and whatnot after that. And so writers and editors sometimes call that writing on spec. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I would say, you know, for for us, we we look at projects, you know, when we're sort of encountering a, a book for the first time or a book project for the first time, we look at full manuscripts, we look at proposals, we look at proposals and sample chapters. Um, And I personally, as an editor, I'm, you know, I have no universal preference as to which one is better. Um, You know, it varies from project to project and, and sort of where the author is in their sort of thinking right? Um, You know, some people find it very valuable to get early feedback and to, you know, sort of send in that proposal and and that sample chapter and get that early feedback. Um, Some people know where they're going, right? They know where they're starting. They know where they're going. It's a matter of executing. Um, And oftentimes, those are folks who are saying okay i'll I'll send you the full manuscript when it's done but i don't want to sort of mess with this beforehand um and that's fine you know there there's some danger to if you send a full manuscript in and your readers are like hey this is great except you have to completely rewrite it um that can be hard to hear uh and and it's a lot of work right so um that, I mean, that's another sort of you should know yourself and, and know how you work as a scholar and know where you are with the project um, and know what it is that you need in terms of milestones for your own professional development, right?
1: You've also recently took to social media to talk to... Scholars and authors about due diligence. You called it your semi-regular reminder nice. about publishing a book. There's some things you want people to do in advance of signing contracts with a publisher or signing contracts with an agent. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the wisdom that um, authors need to hear? Yeah, I
0: mean, it, you know, it, you know, you can do this or not. It's up to you, right? But um, you know, I would say particularly. You know, I would say in the university press world, you know, most most of us are known quantities. Right. Um, We are attached to institutions that are have been around for some time. Right. Um, There are in the sort of wider trade publishing world, there are scams, which, you know, you should look out for. Um, There's a great resource called Writer Beware. which, you know, sort of catalogs these and, and, you know, sort of some fly-by-night operations, people who act in unethical ways. Um, you know, if you are thinking that you want to write a trade book, a book for general audiences, generally, um, in most cases, not all, uh, your best route there is to work with an agent, um, agents, are not really regulated, right? You know, this is not sort of a a business with a high barrier to entry, right? So so people can sort of just call themselves a literary agent. Um, There's no licensing exam or anything like that. Um, So that's a case in which, you know, you sort of want to see if they've made any sales, um, you know, talk to some of their previous clients, stuff like that. Um, I think it is valuable to talk to, you know, for scholars who want to work with the university press who are writing a monograph, it's valuable to talk to other people who have published with that publisher, but like they should be people who have published recently. Um, Publishing does change. It has changed a lot in the 20 years that I've been in it. It's changed a lot just in the five years that I've been at Hopkins. Um, So someone who published with Hopkins 20 years ago is going to have had a very different experience than someone who's going to be, you know, whose book is coming out next week. Um, And again, this, this sort of gets to the question that I mentioned earlier of, you know, you have to figure out what's important to you, right? So if you are working with a publisher who doesn't distribute to Australia, let's say, to pick a random place on the globe... If that is not important to you, then it should not figure into your decision-making, right? But it may be important to someone else who worked with that publisher. They may be really upset that their book was not for sale in Australia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think that due diligence is important. Um, I think most, most publishers, most editors, most people in my position are, are generally acting in good faith. Um, most are good at what they do, um, but there are sort of particularly in the outside of the, uh, let me back up, particularly outside of the sort of university press ecosystem, which again, you know, we're all attached to these larger institutions. Um, it can be worth it to, to do a quick Google.
1: I did an episode a bit ago that listeners can find about how to write a book proposal. You can offer us wisdom about when to submit it to you. So if we've written one and we've done our best, when do we send it to you? Yeah, um, you know, when, when you when you feel it's done. Uh, so um, there are there a are number
0: Well, scholars never feel anything's done, right. so give us a nudge, Laura. Yeah, that's fair. That's <laughs> totally fair. Um, you do have to let go of it at some point. So the thing to remember about the book proposal is that it's this weird genre of writing in which the most successful book proposal will never see print, right? It's never... Like, I'm never going to publish the book proposal... No one's going to see it outside of sort of me and my colleagues here and, you know, our peer reviewers, and then also whoever you share it with. So this is a case in which this does not need to be perfect. It needs to be good. It needs to be compelling. Um, It needs to make a case for your book and why it should exist and why you should be the person to write it. It does not need to be like perfect. Um, so, I make a number of recommendations about this. Um, you know, one is before you even write a proposal, if you are at, say, the AHA um, for historians or whatever the meeting in your discipline is, you can and, and you're walking through the book exhibit, um, you know, and you see an editor who you're maybe interested in working with, or you think you might be interested in that publisher. You know, you can just go up to that person and say, hey, I'm working on a book on XYZ, give the sort of three sentence, um, you know, description and say, is this something that you guys would be interested in? And the value to doing that is that if it is not, you know, if the press is moving out of that subject area or not acquiring that subject area, you, you get that information right away and you can move on, right? Um, Probably the most common reason for rejecting books is in my program is this seems like a great idea but we just don't publish this, right? We just are not publishing in this area. We don't have critical mass. We don't have the sort of marketing um, reach. And in those cases, you know, you're better served by a press that does. Um, you know, some editors will give extensive feedback on proposals. Um, Some editors give sort of top line feedback. I tend to give sort of top line feedback. Um, but really, you know, this is about, it's about an idea, right? It's about the, the big idea that's at the core of your book and why it's important and why it matters. And if you are enthusiastic about it, or interested in it, or obsessed with it, or whatever that is, um, that should come through in your book proposal. Um, but ultimately, this is a mechanical uh, thing, right? It's a, it's a document that has a job. That job is to explain to people what it is you're going to do. So um, don't Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, I would say, in writing a book proposal.
1: You spoke a bit about how to approach an editor if we're lucky enough to see one at a a conference and we have a moment that it's appropriate to approach them. But overall, how do we approach an editor if we're not going to have a comfortable face-to-face introduction?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, you can just send an email uh, (laughs) and you can sort of do the same thing that you might do face to face. Um, You can say, hey, I am a scholar of XYZ. I'm working on this. Um, Here's my one paragraph description. Is this something you would be interested in? Um, You know, I think one of the, the things that Um, was really valuable that came out of COVID is people are now more likely to say to me like, Hey, listen, I'm not going to AHA, but can we set up a zoom? Can we talk, you know, and, and generally that, that is not a problem to do 20 minutes, half an hour, something like that. We can sort of talk through the project. Um, You know, I, I think um, a lot of people are concerned that there is like some wrong way to approach an editor and like, really, the wrong way to do it is to be an asshole, and the other ways are all fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I would I would not recommend cold calling um, on the phone, um, in, in part because um, many of us work remotely part or all of the time, so we may not be there to pick up the phone. But also because we are people who. By and large, we function with the written word, and so there's very little that I can tell someone on the phone without having something written to look at. Um, that's the only thing I would say you should you should not do. Um, but you can certainly send an email and say like, "Hey, can we talk about this on the phone? Can we? You know, here's a I've attached a prospectus. You know, can we chat more? That's totally fine." Um, going up to someone at a meeting is fine um, if they're not sort of obviously engaged. Um, I will say that, particularly the big meetings, the AHAs, the APSAs, the whatever the other large meetings are in other disciplines, um, you know, we do tend to have a lot of appointments. That person may say, Hey, I can't talk to you now, but can you come back, you know, tomorrow at two or can you send me an email or whatever it is? Um, and that's not a please go away. That's a I have booked back-to-back meetings and I have only consumed caffeine today, right? So, (laughs) um, you know, you can, uh, one thing I encourage people to do is, um, you know, if particularly if you have a university press on campus, um, you can reach out to that university press and say, hey, can you send an editor to, to talk to our group of grad students or postdocs. Um, we're pretty much always happy to do that. I do it at Hopkins probably every couple of years. Um, I do it at other universities. Um, that's, that's totally fine to do. Um, it's particularly in the age of zoom. If you can set this up over zoom, it's super easy for us to just take an hour out of the day and, and talk about what we do. Um, and how best to, to do this. Um, I would say I get proposals, maybe half of them are just people saying, Hey, we've never met before. Here's a book proposal. That's fine. Um, you know, those many of those proposals become books. Um, so again, I I think, you know, the, the key is not to stress over, what is the exact right way and wrong way to do this? Um, the key is to be polite, um, be upfront, be, be honest about, you know, what your work is and what stage it's at and what your sort of timeline is. And, um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's fine. Like, (laughs) you know, there's no, like, there's no, um, you know, you have to approach in the right way and kiss the ring and all that sort of thing. That's, that's, that's just, it's not a thing. It, it's, it doesn't exist. So.
1: A question you've been getting quite a bit lately is about previously published material and how that affects your book. Mm-hmm. How does it affect a, a book manuscript? If you've already published bits here and there as articles or um it perhaps is a part of it appeared as a chapter in an anthology.
0: Yeah, so I would say that's that's totally normal. It's particularly normal for um you know first books uh, that are based on revised dissertations um to have I would say at least one chapter that has appeared somewhere else, usually in a journal. Um two chapters is, is fine. Uh, When we start to get into like three, four, five chapters, then I start to say like, okay, this, you know, if someone who is interested in your work can read all of your work without, you know, engaging with the book, then that is where I sort of start to say like, hey, okay, we need something new in the book. Um, But in terms of, a single chapter, a couple of chapters, you know, one or two chapters, that, that's normal. Um, and and certainly given the way that the academic job market, to the extent that it rewards anything, rewards publications, it's, it's sort of expected for a first book. Um, but we do want there to be something new in the book, right? We want there to be a, a unique selling point to the book. Um, but you know, having your work out there in a journal, that's essentially advertising, right? It's 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 sort of planting a flag and saying like, hey, I am this person. I am concerned with this question. You know, if this is something that interests you,
1: pay attention, so. What do you wish uh, more people asked you?
0: Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I wish that more people would ask about um at any point in our process what they are expected to do um and sometimes the answer is nothing right (laughs) so right there are points in our process that um the author is just waiting um and it is fine if you sense that you're in sort of one of those lulls to be like, Hey, is there something I'm supposed to be doing right now? And often my answer is no, you should go to the beach. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're sort of waiting on peer reviews or there's in our production process, there are certain sort of quiet points where the book is being typeset and there's really not that much for you to do because it's in the hands of the typesetter. Right. Um but I, I wish that people would ask actually a lot of the questions that, that you've asked about, you know, sort of what's expected of them. Um, that, you know, we I try to be as upfront as I can about those things. But again, this is a, the, I don't know what you don't know. Right. And I don't know what is most important to you. Um, and... One hundred percent. If I don't know what is most important to you, I I can't make that happen. Right? There are certain things that I just can't make happen. Full stop. You know, if you would like your book printed on stone tablets, I'm sorry, we cannot do that. Um, but, but most of the requests I get from people are much more in the realm of reasonable. So, uh, but we don't know if you don't tell us. So,
1: are there any myths or misconceptions you'd like to take this opportunity to clear up?
0: Yeah. um, Well, we covered the advanced contract thing. I think that's very common. Um, I think a lot of authors feel that um, their publisher doesn't market their book. Um, And I know that in some cases that is true. (laughs) Um, In many cases, I would say most it's that uh, marketing... The way that academic books are marketed is not visible, um, in the way that uh, the way that trade books are marketed is is very visible. So, um, you know, we do a lot of that marketing through uh, direct mail, direct email, um, bringing books to conferences. Um, you know, there are a lot of sort of things that happen behind the scenes that are not visible to authors and, and it's very possible we're not doing a good enough job of making them visible to authors, but also, uh, metadata is boring. (laughs) It's super, super important. The metadata for your book, which is the sort of, um, all of the, the information about your book and its content that we transmit to Amazon and BN and you know all of our sort of trading partners. Um, that's very important. We spend a lot of time on it, and authors generally find it very boring to hear me talk about it. Um, but that that is what drives a lot of discoverability. Um, a common misconception is that I have any influence whatsoever on what Amazon does. I do not. They do whatever they want. Um, we, we see very often that our books, you know, Amazon has all those specialized bestseller lists, and sometimes our books will be like the number six bestseller in a category that is only tangentially related to the book itself. I don't know why I, that happens either. I mean, I know why it happens. I, I can't do much to, to change it, right? That's sort of Amazon is... Um, metaphorically putting that book on a shelf in the bookstore and we can't go in necessarily and move it um you know there are some things at Amazon that we can change obviously the copy that appears there um stuff like that if that data is wrong that is that's us um but a lot of what Amazon does is they, they just they, they just do it. I don't know <laughs> we don't we don't we don't know. So um, that's a very common misconception I think.
1: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?
0: Yeah I hope you know I hope that it will
1: encourage authors to see their
0: publisher as a partner um, to see their editor as a partner um, rather than a sort of faceless, Force that must be appeased. Um, you, know, I, you know, I want the books that I work on to be successful, right? I'm, I'm working on them because I believe that they are important in some way. Um, I want people to read them. Um, you know, I'm realistic about how many people will read them for most academic books. You know, the market is a couple hundred people but I do think those couple hundred people should read the books that I publish. Um, you know, and I think many authors don't necessarily see their publisher and their, their editor in, in that way. And I, and I wish that they would at least be open to considering it. Um, you know, we obviously we publish 150 books a year, a an individual may publish three, four or five books in their lifetime. The level of investment is different. That is completely fair to point out. But, um, you know, we're publishing your book because we, we believe that it's important in some way. Right. And, and we want it to be successful and we are doing everything we can to make it successful. Um, I, I, hope that people will come away um, feeling like they can approach an editor, talk to an editor, um, whether that's through email, at AHA, at, at a meeting, at a smaller meeting, um, you know, that, that ultimately, you know, we are dependent on authors to write, like we're dependent on authors to write books. I'm not going to write all these books myself. <laughs> so yeah, um, you know, we we like to hear from you, right? We like to hear from you. We like to hear about the ideas. We like to hear about the ideas that you're enthusiastic about and that are sort of animating for you and that are exciting for you. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of interested in that part of the business, right? And that, that part of the process. So um, I would encourage folks to, feel like they can they can make that connection again. There's no wrong way to do it as long as you are not acting like a real jerk.
1: Thank you so much for being here today, Laura DeBoulis, and giving us your wisdom as an acquisitions editor. Of course. This is the academic life on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler and I hope you will please join us again.